Ryan. And I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. I I got nothing. I'm out. I'm sorry. You don't you don't got a joke? No. Well, should we like Google jokes about murderers? No, we absolutely should not. <sighs> Fine. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. Yeah, happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. Day. So nice to be coming at you on a holiday. Yeah, I bet people thought that, like, because of our prompt, we were going to talk about something really lovey and dovey and Strawberries and marshmallows and all romantic. Flowers. No. No? No. What are we going to talk about, dear? Murder. And I'm so excited. (laughs) We already did say welcome to history, honey, so I guess <laughs> they know what to it's expect. It's been a while since I had a good, gory death story. I, I guess let's get down to it. What murder? Which gory deaths are we talking about today? We are going to talk about the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Oh, so it is seasonal. It's appropriate. Yeah, all right. Just, you know... No no romance, no flowers. Well, depending on what you find romantic. Lots of blood. Do you know much about this? Not really. A while ago, I said, oh, I'm eventually going to do an episode about gangland Chicago prohibition because it's what the people expect. But I never got around to it. So I, I know some things, but not... I think I'm going to learn a lot today. Okay. It happened in Chicago. Yeah, it did. Okay, yeah. Uh, and it happened on February 14th, if we couldn't guess, uh, 1929. The massacre was the murder of seven men from the Northside Gang. Uh, it happened at a garage at 2122 North Clark Street. And for those familiar with Chicago, that's really close to Lincoln Park Zoo. Mm-hmm. Like, basically where the children's zoo part is, exactly west of there on Clark Street. Perhaps we can blame this on the ghosts from Old City Cemetery. We could, maybe. I'm thinking about it. You do realize, like, we've passed this, like, all the time. (laughs) I kind of never realized it was there. The garage was owned by um, a man by the name of Adam Hare. The goal of this massacre was to kill George Bugs Moran. Sure. and We're going to get a lot of wonderful names, aren't we? Oh, yes. So many quotation marks. <laughs> he was the boss of the North Side Gang at the time. The morning of February 14th, 1929, most of Moran's gang had arrived at the garage by about 10.30 a.m. They were there waiting for a shipment of bootleg booze. Mm-hmm. Um, that was going to come in with pink bows. And, and flowers <laughs> and balloons and teddy bears. Yes. Okay, great. Uh, now, Moran was supposed to be there, but he was running late. And as he and his man. Oh. Not, not that type of man, oh. but like his bodyguard sure, dude. Sure. Um, Ted Newberry approached. They saw a police car. Mm-hmm. And they thought there was going to be a shakedown. So they just turned around and went, like, to a coffee shop or something down the street. They're like, <laughs> nope, 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 nope. Just gonna go away. Uh, on their way, turning around, uh, they encountered another gang member, Henry Gusenberg, who also turned back. And uh, then there was another member of the gang, uh, Willie Marks, who saw the police car on his own and was also like, nope, 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 nope. So you're saying Gusenberg didn't want to get cooked? Well, well, they're all running away. Well, they're skedaddling. Uh, 
there there were some lookouts for the massacre. I don't think they really needed them. Everybody was looking out for themselves. Well, no, no. Like, the lookouts were like, okay, can we go, like, kill them now? Oh, oh okay. Like, lookouts for it, not lookouts like, is, is someone going to try to kill us? No, like, can we go kill them now? <laughs> It's an important question to ask. Reconnaissance. Well, their goal was to kill Moran. They thought he was there. So they're really bad at their job. Yeah, they they. it's believed that they mistook um, one of the murdered men, Albert Weinsack, for him because they were like of a similar build and size. And so they called out like, okay, we're ready. Go murder everyone. But they were wrong. He wasn't there. Uh, can I just point out how amazing it is that a bootlegger was named Wineshack? Yeah. I love it. Yeah. They put out the call, people skedaddle, and and a Cadillac sedan pulls up to the garage, and four men get out, two of which are dressed as police. Uh-huh. Uh, the two police come through the rear with shotguns, uh, and they find... Uh, members and collaborators of the Northside gang, and they order them to line up against a wall and signal the two plainclothed men to open fire with two Thompsons of machine guns, also known as Tommy guns. Uh, one had a 20-round box magazine, and one had a 50-round drum, and they just shot them up. <laughs> they went back and forth, even as they fell. These dudes were ripped apart. <laughs> well, if they couldn't find everyone, at least they were thorough in, in so one So thorough! I am not going to go into those details. If you really want to know, it's very easy to find out those details. So I guess uh, this week our Instagram is going to be 18 plus. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to post those pictures that are very easily accessible on the internet everywhere. I saw things I really didn't need to see. I might like the gory story. I don't need to see the gory story, okay? After they shot everyone up, the two plain clothed guys put their arms in the air and mm-hmm. the two police officers led them out oh so like people out on the street wouldn't call the cops like oh don't need a call cops already got them yeah that, that, that sort of that, thing to try to buy themselves a little more time yeah ah. but i mean they just use two machine guns to shoot up people i think people are still gonna call the cops <laughs> so the victims were peter Gusenberg. Uh, who was a frontline enforcer for Moran. Albert Kachalak, uh, he also went by James Clark. I can see why. Uh, he was Moran's second in command. Uh, Adam Hare, who owned the garage, he was also a bookkeeper and manager for the gang. Reinhardt Schwimmer, uh, he was a gambler who just liked to hang out with the gang. They seem like fine fellas. <laughs> Albert Weinshack, as we mentioned, uh, he managed cleaning and drying operations for M- Moran. And as I said, was probably who they thought was him. Uh, John May, who was a car mechanic for the gang, and Frank Gusenberg, who was an enforcer and also the brother of Peter. Now, Frank was actually not dead. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> he. Frank is Bruce Willis from Unbreakable. When police arrived, he was alive with 14 bullet wounds. <laughs> Take that, 50 Cent. And he was still alive at the hospital for several hours. And conscious, because any time they asked him, who shot you? He was just like, no one shot me. (laughs) No, no, no one shot me. Look, we cannot apply medical care until you give up a name. Snitches get stitches. You need the stitches. No, no, I'm not shot. No one shot me. 
he he died a few hours later. I would imagine. Um, the only actual survivor was Highball, which was John May's dog. Somehow he was completely unharmed. Because they weren't trying to kill dogs. <laughs> but you'd think with them just, like, shooting back and forth, somehow the dog might get hit. Dog survives, yay. Yay. Um, <laughs> so that's why we're allowed to make this into a movie, the dog lift. Well, it was made into a movie once. See? I know what I'm talking about. It was, like, a long, long time ago. So it's about time for another version. So afterwards, Moran told newspapers that Capone ordered it. And he said, only Capone kills guys like that. Now, Capone Only he has the flair for the dramatic necessary. <laughs> now, Capone was out of state during this, and he insisted the only man who kills like that is Bugs Moran. So, like, I guess he's like, yeah, he he framed me. I, I do love that there's a, a war in the papers between uh, the mob bosses of the city. Well, you think they actually talk to each other? No, they gotta do it in the paper. They, they hire and mechanics. They just, like, shoot each other. Uh, a laundry guy, like... So many of these jobs are not criminal jobs. <laughs> well, someone's got to do they the wash. They can write. <laughs> the massacre broke uh, the power of the North Side gang um, and pretty much any significant opposition Capone had. So you're saying there was motive. But this did lead to Capone's downfall because authorities and the public were just like ready for it to be over, ready for the bloodshed to stop, ready for his terror to end. So there's the question of who did it, which you seem very confused about. Yeah, I thought this was solved. I always figured, you know, this much time and there's been so much fascination with these Tommy Gunn and Fedora crowds. The case is technically considered unsolved. The end, folks. It's been a short episode. <laughs> well, uh, no, no, no. That doesn't five mean stars on iTunes. That there's not ideas. Oh, okay, great. Doesn't mean that there's not opinions, especially one very prominent opinion, but is technically in like records and everything listed as unsolved. The common idea, if you haven't caught on, is that Al Capone organized the kill to get rid of Moran, which, as we know, didn't work. In a sense, it did. You just he told was, me. He was still alive. Yeah, but practically out of business. He was on the ropes. So at the time, Moran and Capone were fighting for control of the bootleg trade. Um, common knowledge that Moran was trying to hijack uh, some of Capone's businesses, including um, liquor shipments um, from Detroit, a suburban dog track, some saloons. There, he, there was a shift in trying to take over things. And there's also quite a history between yeah. the two gangs. Um, and some people say that they think what led to this started about five years beforehand. So we, we dissolve into flashback. Flashback, flashback, flashback. Five years prior, Dean O'Bannon was the leader of the North Side gang. He had control of the bootleg business, but there was a power struggle be between him and Southside Gang with the leader of uh, Johnny Torrio, whose right-hand man was Al Capone. So in November 1928, uh, O'Banion called Johnny and was like, hey, I want to sell you some of my business for half a million dollars. And he's all like, yeah, let's do that. And so he shows up to pay half a million dollars for some of this business, but it was a setup. Bum, bum, and bum. he got arrested, he lost his money, and he went to jail. So he put a hit out on O'Banion, and three gunmen went to his State Street flower shop and shot him dead. 
this started basically an all-out war between the two gangs. I knew there'd be flowers in this episode. I knew it. <laughs> so the North Side retaliated and killed Torrio uh, outside his home, and then Capone took over the South Side gang. Uh, and then Capone put a hit out on Jaime Wise, who had taken over running the North Side gang. And once he was dead, Bugs Moran took over. I hope gang membership comes with, like, life insurance. <laughs> Because you're going to need it. Yeah. Well, then in early 1929, so like massacres in February, so in like January, Moran sided with Joe Orello against Capone. So they gunned down Pasquiano Lolordo, uh, who's one of Capone's men. And Capone said he would retaliate, thus what probably triggered the massacre. I don't know. Half those guys were cops. I saw their uniforms. <laughs> I think the police did it. Yeah. Otherwise, why would they be dressed like that? I would never know gangsters to lie. What? After it happened, you know, police are obviously, like, gonna investigate. Gonna try to figure out who did it and stuff. Uh, so one of the things they did was put a focus on Detroit's Purple Gang, which was also known as the Sugar House Gang. Mm-hmm. Not um, to be confused with the Sugar Hill Gang. Yeah, not them. Not them. It's generally believed that they were involved in placing the call to Moran that the truckload of booze was on its way. It could have been that they were the ones that actually did the killing. Mm -hmm. um, instead of driving the booze, it was them who showed up at the garage. Um, now, four men from the Purple Gang were arrested. Mm -hmm. um, two landladies who owned uh, housing like across the street from the garage picked them out uh, via mugshots as men who had recently taken rooms in their building about 10 days before the massacre. The landladies, however, like, wavered on their stories, and the men ended up getting released because nothing lined up anymore. Mm -hmm. Shortly after the massacre on February 22nd, uh, the police were called to a s the scene of a garage fire on Wood Street. Wood Street runs, like, north-south west of Ashland, but I'm not sure where on Wood Street exactly. Doesn't really matter, though. They found a 1927 Cadillac sedan disassembled and partially burned. It was determined that it was the car that the killers used. It probably got burned in all that fire. I'm a detective. So the engine number was traced to a Michigan Avenue dealer, probably from the Motor Row area. Um, yeah. Yeah, not too far away. Southside represent. Um, since that was like... Where he bought cars then. Uh, and it had been sold to a James Morton uh, who lived in Los Angeles. A man by the name of Frank Rogers had rented that garage. <laughs> yes. A different man by the name of Frank Rogers, let's just be clear. Yes. When gangsters shoot the people in your neighborhood. <laughs> in your neighborhood. <laughs> good? You good now? I'm okay. Okay. I'm okay. Uh, we aren't drinking. Why does it seem like we're drinking right now? So the address he gave as his home address was actually the address for Circus Cafe, which was run by a Claude Maddox. He was a former St. Louis gangster with ties to both Capone and the Purple Gang. Police were not ever able to track down Morden or Frank Rogers. So if you're following this episode at home and you want to get like a cork board with a lot of colored... Bits of string and Yeah, it's pins. a great idea. Yeah. <laughs> Craft time. I told you this one's complicated. <laughs> One of the only other leads they had to go on 
was that shortly before the massacre, a truck driver by the name of Elmer Lewis was close to the scene and almost collided with a police car. Now, he stopped, but was waved on by them. During this, he noticed that one of the cops was missing a tooth. Uh, A similar description was given by H. Wallace Cladwell, who was the president of the Board of Education, and also witnessed the accident. You know what happens if you've got someone pretending to be a Chicago police officer with a fake tooth? Hmm. It's one of the wet bandits. Baby. So this led to police thinking it could be Fred Killer Burke. I wonder why they <laughs> thought it was Fred Killer Burke. <laughs> what with the killing and whatnot. I don't even think he has, like, the worst name. There's, like, one later on that I just think is insane. <laughs> Joe, I actually did it. <laughs> Shoot him up, son. <laughs> I, want, I want someone's last name to be Shoot him up, son. How are the little Shoot him up, sons? <laughs> Uh, they oh, Tommy are... Gunn is just growing up so big and strong. But he's awful. <laughs> and Grenade, you should see Grenade in her school play. <laughs> it's Sweeney Todd. Killer Burke. Fred Killer Burke um, was a former member of the Egan's Rats, um, a gang based in St. Louis. He and another person were known to do robberies in police uniforms. And they always left the taps running. I'm telling you. <laughs> so Fred Killer Burke was a fugitive. Um, so they couldn't exactly like bring him in for questioning. It was a little problematic. They'd like to, I imagine. Yeah. Um, police also su- suspected some of Capone's top men. John Scalise, Albert Anselmi, uh, this is my favorite, Machine Gun Jack McGurn. Like, Machine Gun isn't, like, nickname in the middle. He puts it before Jack. (laughs) He's special like that. He actually got the nickname because he typed really fast. Yeah. He was really good on a typewriter. Uh, He was also part owner of the Green Mill, the uptown speakeasy. The Green Mill, though, is, like, by those theaters, like the Riviera and the Argonne, and it was known for having, like, hidden passageways into tunnels that connected to a lot of these places for yeah. the bootleg trade. Yeah. Yeah, and it's still in operation. Also, they also suspected uh, Joseph Hoptoad Guinta. Hoptoad. What is that? Like, you got machine gun and killer, and then you got Hoptoad. I guess a Hoptoad would be terrifying to bugs. So, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. McGurn's charges were dropped for lack of evidence, and the other three were murdered before they could go to trial in May of 1929. Well, that wrapped itself up pretty nicely. Thanks for listening, folks. Uh, I think it was nope. a five-star rating on... What? No. Okay. No, no, no. Uh, now, it is believed that they were murdered by Capone. <laughs> no Never loose proven. Ends. No loose ends. After McGurn's charges were dropped, uh, he started receiving anonymous valentines in the mail. Uh, most likely, you know, from people who thought he was a part of the massacre. And it's unclear who eventually killed him. He, he, he was murdered in the, in 1936. And by then the North Side gang was really whacked off at him. And the South Side gang was like, wanted nothing to do with him. And on February 15th, 1936, at a bowling alley uh, by Milwaukee in Chicago, which is now a Dunkin' Donuts, someone came in and shot him and left a valentine at his feet. They were a day it was late. like It was a really weird valentine. It wasn't like, it wasn't traditional, but it left well, a little like thingy at his feet. If it comes with bullets, how traditional can you expect it to yeah, be? there's that. So the case was pretty much at a standstill until December 14th. 1929. 
And we're going to hear all about it right after this. So you are going to tell us about December 14th, 1929. Yes. Ten months after the incident. Yes. So in uh, Beeman County, Michigan... The sheriff's department raided a St. Joseph bungalow <laughs> of a Frederick Dane. Nothing good happens in a bungalow. Frederick Dane was uh, said to be the owner of a vehicle that had been driven by Fred Killer Burke, uh, who had been drinking, rear-ended a car, and then drove off in a cop chase. Like, a cop, like, jumped on his, like, running board, and he shot him, like, three times. That's awesome. And then the cop later died. This is why people make gangster movies, because they did it for real. Yeah. They jumped on stuff and got shot, and yeah. <laughs> uh, so it was found out that Frederick Dane was Fred Burke, and the raid led to them finding a trunk filled with a bulletproof vest, about $320,000 worth of stolen bonds, uh, two Tommy guns, and a variety of other weapons and ammo miscellaneous guns you know, and ammo. nothing incriminating there and a subscription to guns and ammo <laughs> the sheriff's department called chicago about the tommy guns and they quickly requested both of them uh forensic ballistics at the time was relatively new but they did determine that the guns were used in the massacre and it was also believed that they were used in the murder of a new york gangster as well one of the guns uh was gun number 2347 it was Bought in uh, November of 1924 by a sh deputy sheriff in Marion, Illinois. Um, that was a big bootleg area. Now, the deputy was documented to have ties to the Egan's Rats gang. And by 1927, it had made its way into the hands of Fred Killer Burke. The other gun, gun number 7590, was sold to a Victor Thompson in Elgin, Illinois. And then at some point, it ended up with a James Bozo Shoop, uh, who was a Chicago Westsider with ties to Capone. Oh, I'm so sick of that clown. Now we know, like, why they had to take Bozo off TV. Yeah. He's <laughs> a gangster. No other concrete evidence would surface in the case. And Burke was still on the run. Uh, during all of this. Uh, he would not be captured until a year later in Missouri, and he was tried in Michigan for the murder of the patrolman because it was the strongest case against him, uh, and he got life in prison for, for that. Well, I'm glad somebody lived after this incident. <laughs> well, if I remember correctly, Burke didn't live that long. I think he, like, died maybe in his 50s or something in jail. I don't remember. No. I hope the dog led a long <laughs> and happy dog life. Uh, in 1973, a bank robber by the name of Harvey Bailey uh, would say that he and Burke were drinking in Calumet City during the murder, so, like, Burke couldn't have been involved, uh, and that the heat that came from all this led to them having to abandon their bank robbing ventures, and he was really upset about this. <laughs> he was very bitter. On uh, January 8th, 1935, FBI agents surrounded an apartment building in Chicago looking for members of the Barker gang. After a brief exchange of gunfire, one person was dead, but police had uh, Doc Barker and Brian Bolton and two women in custody. Now, Barker refused to speak, but Bolton apparently would not shut up. That's a problem I've had with Boltons. Yeah. Michael in particular. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. Well, well, this one was right along there, too. So he claimed to have been a part of the massacre. Along, he would. <laughs> uh, along with Fred Getz, a Chicago hitman, Fred Killer Burke, and several others. Now, the FBI had no jurisdiction in state murder investigations, so they just, like, didn't say anything. They just were like, <laughs> shh, this never happened. We're not going to tell anyone. But Chicago American newspaper reported secondhand a version of the story and declared the crime solved. Uh, and versions of that story appeared in papers across the country. Bolton also claimed the murder was plotted in October, November 1928 in Wisconsin with Getz, Capone, Burke, Gus Winkler, Louis Campagna, Danielle Semtella, and William Pacelli, uh, and himself present. Uh, he claimed he was one of two in charge of watching the garage and phoning the signal to the killers at Circus Cafe. He didn't do at, such a good job. Yeah, at least he admitted to being a failure. Uh, he he did go on to say that he thought one of the dudes was Moran. Like that was clearly. Uh, he believed the killers were Burke, uh, Winkler, Getz, uh, a man by the name of Bob Carey. Raymond Craneck Nugent and Claude Maddox, um, which would mean four shooters and two drivers, um, suggesting a second car was involved. Mm-hmm. Now, another sedan had been found near Maywood at a house owned by Claude Maddox very shortly after the crime, a few days later. And in there was an address book that did belong to a victim. So, Yeah. Now, Bolton's claims were upheld by Gus Winkler's widow, Georgette, in an FBI statement uh, and her memoir. She said her husband was also part of a special Capone crew called the American Boys, which were used for very special jobs. <laughs> Only the, the red, white, and bluest hitmen. Oh, yeah. Bank robber Alvin Carpus would later claim to have heard secondhand about the massacre and American boys from Capone himself when they were in Alcatraz. No action would ever be taken by the FBI, and as we said, the case remained unsolved. A lot of this is because, like, all the men except for Burke and Maddox were dead by 1935. Oh. Like, there was no one to go after. (laughs) It does tend to make a trail run cold at that point. Whoever would have thought a guy named Machine Gun would die young. (laughs) So there is, like, one person that has, like, a different idea about who did it, and that's this author, Jonathan Igg. He he doesn't think Capone is to blame. Uh, He said Capone had already, like, won his fight with Moran. He was too busy fighting federal indictment. Uh, He thought, thinks that it was the act of revenge by a a family of Billy DeVern, uh, who was a firefighter that was shot to death by Peter and Frank Gusenberg. He's apparently the only person who thinks this. So, I don't know about that. I think somebody just has a big old crush on Al Capone. Don't don't, don't blame him. He didn't do it. He's a good boy. Yeah. Who doesn't know how to multitask, apparently. (laughs) During this time, Capone was pretty absent. Uh, In May of 1929, uh, he had left town again like he was gone during the massacre and he left again Mm -hmm. to avoid uh the heat that was still coming from it and also probably to avoid the suspicion of uh killing the people that were in prison (laughs) 
some point he ended up in Philly, and he and his bodyguard were picked up on charges of carrying concealed weapons and went to prison and eventually ended up at Eastern State Penitentiary. You can learn more by going back to our uh, episode titled Firsthand Philadelphia a few yeah. months back. Uh, so he was released two months early, and in April of 1930, he returned to Chicago as public enemy number one. I love that song. <laughs> Not really. I like every other song from Anything Goes Better. <laughs> in prison at Eastern State, uh, he started to say that he was haunted by James Clark, one of the people who died. And then back in Chicago at the Lexington Hotel, also not too far away from the area, the hauntings continued. Many of his uh, like bodyguards confirmed that he would talk of the hauntings and that scream out, at the ghost, and he even hired a psychic by the name of Alice Britt to hold a seance to try and rid the spirit of James Clark. Capone uh, would eventually be sentenced to 11 years in federal prison in November of 1931 for tax evasion, and he went to Atlanta U.S. Penitentiary and later to Alcatraz. Uh, during this time, he was diagnosed with syphilis, gonorrhea, and withdrawal from cocaine addiction. Somebody's been having fun. <laughs> he was paroled in November of 1939 after spending uh, the last year of his sentence in a prison hospital suffering from neurosyphilis and on a really rapid decline. From his release until his death in 1947, he was just sick. He was really, really sick. Poor murder man. So that leads, like, what happened to Moran afterwards? Uh, he continued to be the, the leader of the Northside gang until uh, through the 1930s. He left and went back to doing petty crimes, bank robbery, that type of stuff. Well, yeah, after Prohibition ended, the big cash cow is dead. Yeah. In 1939, uh, he was convicted of trying to make and cash $62,000 worth of checks. Uh, after posting bond, he ran but was captured. And in uh, 1942, he was released from that sentence, but then arrested two and a half years later um, for involvement in a robbery and spent 20 more years in jail and then was released. And in 1957, he was sentenced to 10 more years in jail for robbery, but he died of lung cancer like two months into his sentence. So much for the untouchables, huh? If it's not a bullet, you're going to get... Cancer or syphilis. That's the Chicago way. After the massacre, mm -hmm. the building, the garage, uh, became a bit of a tourist attraction. You mm -hmm. know, because people like to look at bloody things, apparently. Not like you. You just like to talk about them. It's very yeah, different. Yeah, it is. Um, in 1949... A couple turned the front section into an antique furniture storage business, um, and they had no knowledge of what had happened there. How they had no knowledge, I don't know, but they didn't. Um, it's not something the realtor is required <laughs> to mention. Well, they quickly learned, though, from all the people who would, like, show up to, like, look at the place <laughs> and try to, like, find blood, and they didn't stay in business very long. In 1967, the building was demolished. Canadian businessman George Patty uh, bought the bricks from the bullet-marked wall. Mm -hmm. And in 1972, he opened a nightclub in Canada that was 20s-themed, and he used the bricks to build a wall in the men's bathroom. 
Well, how come ladies can't see all the bullet Apparently, holes? like, two nights a year, they would, like, let women in there to, like, look at the wall. Use they, half the bricks, half and half. Come the, on. The, the dudes get the bullet-marked wall. The ladies of Chicago get the beautiful best view out of the Hancock building in the bathroom. That's true. That's true. Yeah. I, if you ever go to the Hancock building, ladies' restroom, on the, like, the... The signature the lounge. signature lounge floor, best view of the city. Men's room is, doesn't even have a window. No, <laughs> we got a whole wall. Equality, huh? <laughs> it, the amount of selfies that happen in that bathroom. <laughs> so the nightclub closed a few years after opening, and the bricks were removed, and George Patty ch- attempted to sell them off individually for 800 to to $1,000. He did sell some. Uh, a lot of them were actually returned because people said they were cursed. <laughs> and, like, bad... Stuff started happening when they had it, or they felt were haunted, or whatever. I, I used this brick in, in my house, and then six men came and shot me a thousand times. <laughs> I don't want it anymore. Take it back. <laughs> also, I'm a ghost. The bricks popped up a lot in news stories over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1996, there was a story where he was attempting to sell uh, 414 of them for $200,000. In 2004, it was down to 135 bricks. In 2009, they had been bought by the Mob Museum that was being built in Las Vegas. That sounds like a fun museum. Yeah. Um, And so the Mob Museum uh, reassembled the wall, added Mm. some red paint to it, and it is now on display there. That's cool. Yeah. So the spot where the garage stood is empty the building next to it still stands like if you look up like the building Mm -hmm. uh like if you go to the address on like google maps um the street view like sometimes they have like historical picture things or for like interesting events Mm -hmm. like you can you can see them so it will show you like the lot but then there's like a picture that's from the time period when the garage stood and like the building next to it like is still there and you can see it and it looks like exactly the same which is kind of neat. Yeah. It's an empty lot. It does have a fence around it, and there's a few trees. Um, of course, people do say it is haunted. Well, the, the dog didn't die there. We know that. The dog <laughs> lived, but that because the dog was, like, so incredibly, like, freaked out. Yeah. He left, like, a psychic imprint on the place <laughs> that would, like, anytime sure. dogs would walk sure. up by, the dogs would, like, flip out because they knew. They sensed it. Because dogs are also psychic. They're, yes. They're attuned to this dog's trauma frequency. Yeah. Through the ages. Yeah. All right. Yeah, hey, yeah, hey, yeah. I don't make these things up. I don't say I believe in them. I just share them. I know you don't make these things up, but let me just say somebody <laughs> makes these things up. That's not real. Yeah. That's what's there now. And then really the only thing like left, Tommy Gunn's Garage. <laughs> It's an interactive dinner theater. Those are three words I love separately. (laughs) Tommy Gun Garage? No, interactive (laughs) dinner and theater. Not not together. No. No, no, it's kind of terrible. It's like medieval times taken to a terrible level. (laughs) So they've they've been operating on Chicago's nearest to south side since like 1987. Mm -hmm. Which I've known about. We have never gone. I'm I'm curious. I'm curious. Because for the past 30 years, around Valentine's Day, for, like, the week around it, they reenact 
the St. Valentine's Day Massacre as a dinner theater. And if it wasn't so expensive, I'd say, let's go. What are they doing? (laughs) They do say, like, this isn't, like, for the romantic night. Unless he was a freak, yeah. But there's no, like, warning of, like, blood and gore. And I'm sorry, if I'm going to have to sit through an interactive dinner theater about the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, those blood packs better be exploding left and right, and I better leave looking like I just, like was part of Carrie. We need some straight Tarantino Hideo Kojima blood packs. Yes. And I'm not willing to pay $80 to find out that's not what I get. All right. uh, The first five rows are the splash zone. Yes. Yes. I'm curious how interactive they can be with a historical event. Maybe they pull you up on stage and they make you die. Of embarrassment? Because I think that might be every week. Well, yeah, there'd be that. But maybe they, like, pull you and you're like, you're the one we're going to massacre. Also, your pasta is half off. There you go. <laughs> According to reviews, it's not good. Apparently the food's just terrible. That's, uh, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Are you, are you feeling all romantic uh, with Valentine's? Oh, my heart is all a flutter. That might just be fibrillation from being shot 40 times, but it is definitely fluttering. No, no one shot you. It's a lot of blood loss. No one shot you. No one shot me either. (laughs) What are all those holes then? Bug bite. It was a mosquito. (laughs) (laughs) So did did you learn anything? I learned that contrary to a lot of our sort of historical legends, like, you know, cowboys and and, uh, westward settlers and Vikings and all these other groups – the, the gangster stories are a lot truer than you might think. Yeah. Like, these are people who would rather die than snitch and... No one shot me! <laughs> uh, high-speed chases with cops jumping on their running boards. Yeah. It's amazing that the stuff they do in movies is actually kind of accurate. <laughs> you can just imagine the opening scene of some movie. It's all shot... Uh, very low angles, people in like 75% speed getting out of their car and their cop outfit silently, mm-hmm. and then all sorts of mayhem breaks loose. Mm-hmm. It's real. It is fairly real. <laughs> I do love all the like locations. Yeah, this, like, this was sort of a, I mean, because Chicago itself was a nexus for organized crime, but. We've got St. Louis, we've got Detroit. It's the whole Midwest network of of booze runners and mm-hmm. and gambling den owners. Well, and then like all the locations within like just the city of Chicago and how they like oh yes, they use this address which is actually this and this for this and you know, the layers of stuff they use to try to take people off the, you know, the path. Part of what made it technically unsolvable is all of the suspects died. Yeah. <laughs> but before any real evidence could come on them. But how much of it is also because cops didn't care to find the evidence, either because they're doing their job for them or they're on the take? There's also that. That's a good question. Well, it's also like it's a crime against another gang. Do you actually care that they're dead? Uh, they sure <laughs> don't these days. Like, some things never change. People weren't exactly like eager either for the reason of they just didn't care like oh good you're dead or i'm not gonna put that person in jail because they just gave me money 
I guess we'll never know because they're all dead. <laughs> so after learning, uh, I think we're going to take a quick break for some chocolate-covered strawberries and Prosecco. And what, There's strawberries? Chocolate-covered ones? What? Happy Valentine's Day, dear. What? And we'll be right back. I think this back. is a lie. And we'll be right back. I want to see these. Evident- <laughs> Show me the evidence. And we'll be right back with your letters. That was a joke, wasn't it? You just tricked me. Welcome back. We've got some letters to read. Letters. 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 Gonna read some letters. Oh, yeah. Gonna read some letters. From the mail. From the mail of electronical times, because it's actually emails. World Wide Web. Nobody got stamps. I got stamps. I got a whole envelope of stamps over there. Because you don't know our mailing address. Well, there's that. Anyway, let's read them. Our prompt uh, for this episode was favorite historical couple. Bet that through people and what our episode's going to be about. Happy Valentine's Day. Murder! And love. (laughs) Murder and love. The history honey story. So the first one we're going to read came from our good buddy James, wrote back again. Uh, James has two favorite historical couples making history right now in living memory. Two first couples, the Obamas and the Clintons. Barack and Michelle Obama because they are a serious power couple and just naturally endearing. That is true. Yeah. Any picture with either of them and children? They make me go, aww. And Bill and Hillary Clinton, because uh, while both have been the subject of a lot of scrutiny for a long time, uh, despite everything that's happened to the both of them, they still seem to love each other. And I think that just proves how strong their love is. I don't know. There's nothing the two of them love more than balloons falling from ceilings. I think we learned that this summer. I like balloons falling from ceilings. I'm just saying those are some gifable moments. (laughs) Uh, Speaking of contemporary political figures, James just wanted us to give a shout out to Tammy Baldwin 2018, and uh, I haven't followed her voting record over the last few weeks, so that might be embarrassing in the long run. I don't know. Sounds fun to me, though. Thanks, James. Uh, Shell Game wrote us. Shell Games also uh, mentions that they like our depressing subjects, so I hope you enjoyed this episode, too. Yeah, see, I'm real depressed. (laughs) Uh, 21 skadoo. They did say, which I agree with them on this, is that uh, stories often of death or suppression can really teach us a lot Mm -hmm. um, about where the world we live in and how we uh, act about certain things. And I agree with that. Their uh, favorite couple would be George Sand and Frederick Frederick Chopin. You said it funny earlier, and so I just want to say Chopin. Chopping. Chopping. Goes on to say, they didn't stay together, but there was something about a sickly high society composer and a cross-dressing outspoken writer finding a sort of mismatched chemistry with each other. That's just pretty touching. That sounds like a Noel Coward play. Yeah. But I like Noel Coward plays, so. Yeah. So yeah, thank you, Shell Game. Thank you very much. Alex and Faye write in. Alex's favorite superhero is going to be Iron Man. Uh, but he does have a soft spot for Kamen Rider and other assorted Toku and Henshin shows. Faye's favorite is Batman. All Batman. Always Batman. Batman forever. Well, maybe not Batman forever. <laughs> maybe Batman Lego movie? Hey. A lot of people I know have been saying very good things about it. In theaters now. They do not pay us. They should. They should. 
then I'd maybe pay to see it if they paid me. <laughs> As a couple themselves, uh, Alex sent along two favorite historical couples. Faye has a soft spot for Henry VIII and Jane Seymour, his third wife, the one that bore a living son, and one he seemed to actually love. She's the one of his wives that, that he is buried next to. Aww. A couple Alex finds interesting is the Fitzgeralds, F. Scott and Zelda, if only because it seems so much of their slightly dysfunctional relationship ended up in The Great Gatsby. You know what I really liked about Midnight in Paris? Hmm. The Zelda Fitzgerald parts. I don't remember much of that movie. I just really love Alison Pill. I, I, yeah, Alison Pill is wonderful. She's the best. So thanks, Alex and Faye. Bethany sent us an email. Now, Bethany found us through her boyfriend, Caleb, who uh, recommended it. Bethany has done what we've been telling everyone to do, to go on and tell friends and family. And Bethany exposed her grandparents to History Honeys on a 12-hour road trip, and they thought it was pretty fun. So that's really cool. That's about the best we can hope for, frankly. (laughs) As for uh, favorite couple, King Baudouin and Queen Fabiola, who uh, were reigning Belgium. She goes on to say that they desperately wanted to have children, and though they never could, they invested in a lot of children's foundations um, within the country and did a lot of amazing things while king and queen. Bethany would also like us to give a big Valentine's Day I love you shout out to Caleb. I love you, Caleb. I love you too, Caleb. I'm not sure that's what she meant exactly. Bethany says she loves you. I think that's what she wants. She probably says it a lot in person, so maybe this is more important. I love you, Caleb. (laughs) Oh, we hope you guys are having a good Valentine's. (laughs) Thanks, Bethany. Patchwork Hero writes in to uh, give a little background on something we mentioned in passing in the Stan Lee episode. He was almost a cast member of the uh, reality TV competition show, Who Wants to Be a Superhero? Way back in 2004, he was at San Diego Comic-Con dressed as Budget Man, basically a patchwork hero. A recruiter saw him wandering around, and then he got passed from person to person and got in line for an event to meet Stan Lee with a big old questionnaire. And uh, the the highlight was standing in line with with Stan walking up and down, shaking hands, giving a short, to the point, uh, do you think you have what it takes to be a superhero, and and going on down the line. Uh, which is all it really could be because there were hundreds of people <laughs> who just wanted to, to talk and talk to this this idol, this hero of the uh, medium. Didn't quite have time for that. The only evidence, I guess, that he has of this encounter is a program for the event that Stan Lee signed when, when it was his turn to meet him. So that's why somewhere out there, there's a treasured autograph of, of Stan Lee right on top of Green Lantern. Work with what you got, I guess. And as far as the uh, prompt for favorite historical couple, the the Curies, uh, Marie and Pierre, physicists and and fun folks. Yeah, which gives a good segue to our next email from Porin, who uh, also mentions the Curies as his favorite historical couple. Especially loves that apparently she fell for her husband over a conversation over radioactivity and cycling. What a way to fall for someone. (laughs) I mean, those are the classic small talk conversations, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So thank you both. 
That's all of the emails we got for this episode. Uh, if you would like to send one yourself, maybe hear it read on the show, where do those go? Uh, you can send those to History Honey's Podcast at gmail.com. And feel free to send us anything you want. Uh, uh, questions, suggestion, corrections. Uh, <laughs> or if you're looking for a prompt for next episode, why don't you tell us about your favorite labor union? <laughs> I got a request. You didn't read it. It was probably one of those emails. I saw it. I saw it. (laughs) You can also get in touch with us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at History Honeys. I'm very curious what the Instagram is going to have put on it because you definitely said what won't (laughs) be put on it. I think it would get flagged. And while you're getting in touch with us... Why not help others do the same? A uh, five-star rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher or the podcatcher of your choice would do so much for us. Uh, We appreciate and adore every last one of them. And be sure to tell other people. Be like Caleb, who told Bethany, who told her grandparents. Tell your bagger at the grocery store who will tell what are other occupations um we ran out of occupations it only took they they will tell uh their podiatrist who will tell their pharmacist and if you're a pharmacist you win congratulations hey so go tell people word of mouth really helps yeah. In fact, I'm going to provide some right now for some other folks. A few episodes ago, Kieran wrote in to say uh, he recorded uh, a guest spot on the Our Sexual History podcast talking about syphilis. And that's out now. So go check it out. You can find it a link in the show notes. So if you want to learn more about what Capone had. Exactly. Connects. Yeah. Uh, uh, some friends of ours, Clint and Jared, have an have a podcast of their own called Alka Hollywood, mm-hmm. and they're doing something very exciting and interesting right now. Uh, they've produced a fully casted, scored, and and uh, sound designed audio drama of the unproduced script uh, for Indiana Jones and the Monkey King. Yeah. The you- thankfully unproduced script and it is were, garbage you were you're in it i'm in it a little bit yeah you might be able to pick my uh voice out of some crowd chatter and i have two small roles yeah so uh the link to the first part is uh in the show notes as well it's going to be a lot of parts it's, <laughs> it's not all up yet but it's it's worth it it's fantastic Another friend of mine is uh, kickstarting right now a visual novel uh, called Breakfast Cult based on a tabletop RPG he made of the same name. It's the same setting, but instead of uh, rolling dice with your friends around the table to find out what happens, it's an interactive uh, visual novel type video game to, to explore these characters and stories. There's also a free demo up on Itch.io to uh, sort of get introduced to the world, some of the characters and the writing, and it's really good. So I definitely encourage people to check that out as well. We're being generous today. Yeah. Happy Valentine's Day. We're sharing the love. Aww. <laughs> and we're sharing the syphilis. Uh, happy Valentine's Day. That can come from love. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Grant. And I'm Elena. And history's better with with your honey. honey.